Welcome everyone to this um, seminar at the Peace Research Institute in Oslo, Justifying Military Power in Myanmar and Thailand. Uh, this seminar is jointly organized by the PRIO Center on Culture and Violent Conflict, the CCC, uh, and the Propaganda Project, where we study the role of pop culture, art, and religious and cultural ideas of legitimacy in struggles over democratization and peace, which is funded by the Research Council in Norway. My name is Marta Nilsson. Uh, I'm a senior researcher here at PRIO, and I'm also the project leader of the Propaganda Project and also co-director of the CCC. About a week ago now, the election in Thailand showed a crystal clear popular mandate uh, to political parties that want to take Thailand in a democratic direction. Yet it is not given that the military that took power in a coup in 2014 and since then has been in power will let the winning parties form the new government. And similarly in Myanmar, the military staged a coup in 2021 after yet another landslide election by the National League for Democracy. The coup stirred popular outrage against the military and the country is currently going through immense suffering because of the military's brutality and their mismanagement. And in this seminar, we will dig into the justifications of military rule in these two countries. Why do militaries believe that they are the right institution to govern a country? How do they justify their claim to power? What are their underlying deep-rooted ideological beliefs justifying their right and duty to govern? And to understand the militarized politics in these countries, we need to understand the often culturally and spiritually defined justification that produce military rule. What symbols and arguments are in use? And how do democratic forces navigate in the political landscape? And I'm very proud and honored to have the great speech speakers for this um, seminar. Titipon Pakdiwanit, who is the visiting researcher uh, here at PRIO this month and next month, uh, and also director at the Regional Center for Human Rights at the Faculty of Political Science in Ubon Ratchathani University in Thailand. Um, he just came from Thailand last week, so he followed the election campaign very closely. And Amarathi Ha, who is the doctoral researcher here at PRIO and also at the Propaganda Project, uh, Amara's doctoral research examines the importance of traditional beliefs and rich, uh, ancient rituals in Myanmar politics, going back to the 1990s to explain the political motivation of both the military and opposition groups today. Uh, we will give you approximately 20, 20 plus, but not much more than that, <laughs> minutes to, uh, to uh, introduce your topics. Uh, and after that, we'll sit down and have a conversation uh, and engage with the audience in a Q&A. I'll start with uh, Titipon, please. Welcome. Hi, everyone. Um, 
So thank you for coming here today. And so I will be talking about the roles of the military in Thai politics. So if you look at the title, Thai Redemocratization and the anticipated roles of the military and practical necessities or anxiety self-assertion. And the reason that I put the, the title this way because if you look at the roles of the military in Thai politics, um, from a liberal perspective, people don't really want the military in Thai politics, but from a conservative perspective, they believe that we need the military. And why do they think that? Why is it important for, for them to, to have the military in, in charge as part of the main element in, in Thai politics? So before we go to the discussion about the roles of the military, I think we also have to look at the historical background and why people think the way they are in Thailand. Um, but the other thing that I think we should also acknowledge and mention is about the Asian values that has been one of the main explanation to look uh, to talk about Thai, po Thai politics and politics in Southeast Asia. And this was uh, mainly uh, promoted by Singapore and Malaysia. And this one from the, I like this quote because if you look at this in the East, the main object is to have a well-ordered society so that everyone can have maximum enjoyment of their freedoms. And what does it mean for Thailand? So when you look at the terms well-ordered societies, Thailand is also a very hierarchical uh, society as well. So in order to maintain peace within society, then everyone has to be obedient, which I will be talking about this more. But when we look at a democratic society, then respecting each other is the main element as well to actually to ensure that everyone can live peacefully in society and without conflict. But this is not what people, many people in Thailand believed. They believe that if you look at, we had the coup in 2014, and in 2013, there was a protest by the PDRC. And the coup was actually uh, justified by the supporter that, oh, the coup actually, they helped to, to stop the conflict and violence. Otherwise, many people would have died. But for the pro-democratic group, they argue that but if everyone respects the rules of law and then the military didn't intervene in Thai politics, then we can also have a peaceful society and no one would have died as well. And this is the thing that we would actually have to look at and to discuss the, the issues of military in Thai politics. And if you look at the Thai politics today, the current prime minister was, he was the coup leader and he still, emphasize the point that we need a well-ordered society. So everyone stay in their place. So then uh, understand their role. That, that is how the society that they want. But it is not what uh, young voters want as we will be discussing about the results of this election that we had um, last weekend. And so when we look at Thailand and what kind of conflict are we seeing today? And perhaps it's also important to look at the, uh, the notion of Thainess. When we talk about Thainess, different people have different meanings. But I think the main thing that we have to look at is that 
the meaning that is defined by the Thai government or the state. So there are three main elements, nation, religion, kings. So when we talk about religion, it doesn't mean uh, Christianity or Islam or any other thing. Basically, they focus on Buddhism, and that is the main thing. And uh, If you look at this picture, I took it from the temple, and it's now become common in most Thai temple. This is the, normally they only have picture of the king. This is the daughter of the king and, and Thai flags and the uh, Buddha image. Previously, before this range, before the range of King Rama the, the, the tent, and we didn't have many of pictures of the king. And of course, if you are familiar with Thailand, across the country, you can see the picture of kings, queen everywhere but not, not in the temple as we have seen today. And today, to some extent, I think they partly because uh, uh, of the current situation. So I think that they, they think it's also important to include this element into places that Thai people would, would have gone. Um, why is it important to look at the definition of Thainess? Because when we talk about Thainess, and the three main elements. It is what the military also mentioned it is important to protect. And this is what we, I will be discussing later. But <clears throat> when we look at the structure of power, what does it have to do with the creation of, uh, of the structure of Thai power? And this is what we have seen about the, the Thainess and the hierarchical structure, as I mentioned, that it is not much different from the Asian values that was promoted by uh, Singapore and Malaysia in the 1990s. Um, when you look at hierarchical structure in Thailand, um, they have, we have the notion called kolopuyai, or respecting adult. So if you are younger, then you are supposed to, or you are expected to show respect to people older than you. But from my opinion, when we talk about the, this kind of cultural element, it's go deeper than that, because it also conveys a message of being obedient as well. Respecting each other, if you look at the, uh, the, the, the way we use the word respect, in human rights, respecting um, individual rights, and then everyone has to respect each other. But with the, the way we use this in, in the Thai culture, respecting adult, then you are supposed to and expected to be obedient. So when you are young, then or you are in a lower uh, status in society, then you are expected to be obedient. And this kind of cultural values and and cultural element has been translated into Thai politics as well as the main part of the uh, power structure. So when you are people, you are voters, then even Thailand is now called itself a democratic country after the reform in 1932. But um, the notion of citizenship is not properly translated into Thai society, people are still kind of um, perceived as an object or just part of society without uh, fully uh, discussion about the rights and responsibilities, and which has been 
change a bit more in the past three years that we will talk about this in the result of the election. But when we look at this in the structure of power, what does it mean? And how can it actually be a kind of mechanism to suppress people to, to be where they are? And so if you look at Thai, I'm not sure about here because this is my first time here. So I'm not sure when you go to government official how you feel, but in Thailand, if you go to the uh, public offices, then you have to like bow and you know, like this, in Thailand we why this is a way to show respect. But when you why or show respect, it's also different as well. Like showing respect or say hi or do it obediently, that is also another thing. And this is what people actually feel and have to do when they go to public offices. But of course things have changed. I'm trying to give you the perspective on what is actually happening in Thai society and Thai politics. So when we look at this, like people feel that they are not empowered to challenge the power of the state. And in the past few years during the COVID and in, in 2020, after the dissolution of the Move Forward Party that was one of the most progressive party in, in Thailand, and there was a, a big protest of, of uh, young people. And also include really little things that people don't think it is a problem. For example, like hairstyle of girls in schools. They also protested. And to me, I think they have the right to say that. And I think everyone has the right to, to say what they want, or hairstyle, that kind of thing. But the way the state portrays them as a kind of disobedient uh, student, why don't they understand their role and their place in society? It's not their job to talk about this. And the state already tell them to do this and that. And this is what we have seen, the, the way the kind or hierarchical structure has in Thai culture has been translated into uh, Thai politics to be part of the culture. And that is also one of the main contributing factor to conflicts between different groups as well, especially uh, today between younger generation with the uh, <coughs> older generation. And what does it mean with the current situation in Thai politics? And that is actually with the victory of the Move Forward Party today, or we can see that the um, the way young people challenge the existing culture, culture in Thailand. So it's become a threat to the state and to the authority and to the establishment because they also use this kind of, um, the way young people challenge the power by demonizing them for being disobedient and for being a kind of troublemaker for Thai society and Thai politics. And of course, this argument is very convincing to conservative because when we look at the way, like the, um, in 2020, we had a group of girls wearing cap, uh, white ribbons on their hair to protest against the Ministry of Education for forcing her them to, uh, to cap their hair very short. And many, if you look at the what 
they were portrayed by the conservative, like, oh, this, like they said, like, these two stupid girls, why can't they just like, go to school and study? And this is what we, we have seen. So it's not just about the hairstyle. So when it's, they reflect their demands in this election that we had last week, it's also show how progressive younger generation are. And perhaps they are a kind of a hope for change and democracy in Thailand when they step up and try to speak out on what they want. And this is actually one of the girls that I met at the the campaign of Move Forward Party. And she's still in high schools and she is not eligible to vote yet in, in this election. But she was part of the campaign. And this is not what the first time that we have seen this. In 2019, when we had election, the first time after the coup in 2014, and quite a large number of younger generation at schools, they were part of the campaign and partly because of the access to information and when they learned about the, the new party from you know, Facebook and other social media platforms, then they, they believe that this is a party for change that can actually help to improve their life. So they actually have been part of the campaign of the Move Forward Party. And so when we look at Thailand, and what is the problem that we have seen today? So Move Forward is one of the most progressive parties that we, we have. And because the party also make it clear that they want to uh, amend Article 112. Article 112 is the criminal law that is intended to protect the institution of the monarchy. But this article has strongly been criticized by international communities and the United Nations. So at the UPR or the Review of the State of Human Rights in Thailand, and this article has always been, been brought up in the previous three rounds of the, the Review on the State of Democracy in Thailand. So, but when people criticize this, then the reaction from the Thai government, this is a cultural heritage, this is the domestic matter, so then um, everyone has to respect that. And why did the, they do this? So when you look at this picture, this, this picture I took an, at the temple when king and queen went there to perform the opening ceremony of the new building in the temple. And we can see like lots of people wearing yellow, that is the color for the royal family, and showing picture of king and queen. And this is a cap typical picture that we have seen in Thailand for the supporter of the, the monarchy. So the monarchy is still part of society and still important to the conservative groups and to many Thai. So this is why we have seen the relations between the military and the monarchy. And previously, actually, it's, it is written in Thai, but I can tell you this. And for, or it's half English, so four country, religions, monarchy. Previously, we, they didn't actually have the last part, and people. And they just had that, I think, um, 
sometime after the coup in 2014, partly because the military was strongly criticized by uh, many people for not doing anything for the country and to justify their position in the country. And many arguments that we have seen now, people question that, why do we have to spend that much money for, uh, for defense when we don't actually have war on the border compared to what happened in uh, 1970s when during that Vietnam War that uh, security was one of the main concerns for, for Thailand. But today, Thailand is also spending a lot on, on military. And so then the military is also, but one of the very main uh, justification for the military to speak to the Thai public that they argue that they are here to protect the institution of monarchy that is the center of Thainess, of being Thai as a nation. So before Thailand become Thailand, then we were actually, uh, we needed the institution of the monarchy. So that's why we have to protect the monarchy because it's everything. But this argument is not what many young people believed. So this argument is not very convincing to, to younger generation. And so when we look at the, the changing roles of the military, so they also, to some extent, they are also kept clever in their strategy to, to evolve, to be part of society. And this is the picture that was after the flood. Last year, we had a big flood in, in the province where I'm from. And the military was there to help uh, people to, to recover from, from the consequence of flood. And this is one of the example. And the other thing that the military think is, is important and it's their job is to, this is the training in 2017 that I was there as well. And it's called, in Thai it's called Jit Asa 904 or Volunteer 904. And number nine is representing the, the, the royal family is actually perhaps the the, the number for the previous king. So 904, or volunteer 904, it's a training across the country. And they have different courses and different intensities. And this one was three hours. And it was interesting to be part of that. And because the training was intended to ensure that people who attend this training would, would become a proper Thai. And this is the picture in the training. And we were told to sit properly and to be a good Thai. And this is, so the military also tried to do everything to ensure that the public is fully under, fully understand that it is their role to protect the monarchy. If they don't do this, then that could also be a big problem for the country. And and also the other thing, after the coup in 2014, they also try to engage with different part of society. And th this this is the picture from the province of Sisagate when they, they have the program to help rice farmers to harvest rice during harvesting season. And 
it's also, some people think, why do they have to do this? But to some extent, it's also important for uh, uh, rural farmers because they don't actually have enough money to, to pay for uh, extra labor costs to, to help them. So it's quite a good strategy to be part of local community and the way they, they do it. And, but it doesn't mean that I agree with this. And, but, what I, I'm saying, but from my opinion, if you look at this from a strategic perspective, then this is a very good way to engage and to, to make people feel that we need you in Thai society. If you are not there, then how can we actually live our life, this kind of thing? So this is what they have done. And also this is what we have seen after the coup as well. And this is one of the very main thing in Thailand because Thailand tr tried to define itself as a Buddhist country. So Buddhism is still very important in Thailand to many people. And in the morning, you know, monks go to take food from, from people. Um, and then we have the military helping monks when, when monks go to take food from people. So they, they try to be part of the life of the people to justify their position. And that is quite a kind of clever move to, to tell the public that we are not useless if there is no war, but we are here to do everything. And so this is what this is what uh, younger generation agree with, because when they consider the, the defense spending and the budget, they also argue that why do we need, uh, we don't really need the military in this part of society to do this kind of job. It could be a better way to deal with this kind of thing. And this is a thing. But again, and we still have a kind of big discussion about the role of the military in Thai politics. So when we, we look at the overall picture with that kind of social justification of the roles of the military, and the, the main thing I would argue that um, the military also try to assert themselves into democratization process in the country um, <clears throat> by arguing that they can be a correcting mechanism uh, when democracy fails in the country. What is the problem with Thai democracy since 1932? Did we really have a problem? Thailand is not different from other countries when we look at the democratization process. But democracy in most countries evolved without military intervention. But the military also can behave as a kind of mechanism can provide a shortcut for Thailand to be a democratic country. So when there is a problem, what kind of problem do we have or have we had in the, in the country? But basically what the, the very main argument from the coup makers is about corruption. And this is just the recent figure from uh, 2012 to 2022, you can see that uh, the in corruption index from Transparency International of Thailand. And we are not actually in a good position. Thailand is actually one of the most corrupt countries in Southeast Asia and in the world as well. And, but when we look at this, back in 1990s, the corruption index of Thailand was also uh, similar to this as well. And in the 
previous coup d'etat, and most of the time, one of the very main argument from the military to step in because politicians was very corrupt. And so that's why they had to step in. So, and they also make the, the argument that, can you see that democracy is not a good thing for Thailand? Because democracy allowed people to, uh, politicians to take advantage of the system. And even today, when we look at one of the main policy of the Move Forward Party, they talk about the decentralization and the election of governors in provinces. And the counter argument from the conservatives said that, oh, if we have election at the local levels, then we would have more corruption in the country. Um, from my opinion, that is not quite the case. The problem of corruption has more to do with the uh, enforcement of the law, because once you corrupt or abuse power, then if you are well connected, then you are not arrested. And that is the problem. But it is not what the conservatives see that. They always try to uh, emphasize that corruption in the country is because we have politicians. And that this is just the brief history of the coup that we had in, in Thailand. Uh, just part of it, we have so many. And so when we look at the, the role of the military, and although there are a strong uh, force of the conservative to assert the roles of the military, but from this election, we have seen that the argument from the military is not very convincing. And you can see that this is, these are uh, the supporter of Move Forward Party. They were actually, and this, they were actually reading the newspaper that was published by Move Forward Party. And one of the main issue here was about the spending on submarine. That has been one of the main issues that dominated Thai politics in the past three years when the military proposed to buy uh, two submarines from China, which is a big budget. And people think that we can also use this budget to improve healthcare services, education, which is more important for the people. By United Thai Party, Thai Nations, which is a party of the current Prime Minister. And they released this video a week before the election on, on, a, on the 14th of, uh, of May. Uh, so most of the issues that they portray in this video try to inform the public that if we change, then this is what we would see. Because the campaign of Move Forward is that if we vote for Move Forward, then the country would change. And what kind of changes are you expecting? And uh, this family, like when the son was uh, talking about the uh, democratic values, can't we just, why father can have everything he wants, why can't I just have that? And the main question that they ask, do we want this society when the father or mother have no say in the family. So it's also a reflection of the culture that we have. And they try to portray to the public that it is important to vote for the conservative party to ensure that we can maintain this powers, uh, so, sorry, this culture. But by implication, that would actually help to maintain the power structure in the country. And also the question about the military spending as well. Because there was a picture that the mother asking 
about watching the TV and there was war. And the mother asked the son, where, where are military? And he said, oh, because the military conscription was canceled. That is the main policy by, by Move Forward Party. So they tried to do everything to ensure that they have support. But as I said, that when you look at the, the outcome of this election, they actually have failed, society have changed. And, and if you look at this, the result of the, the election that we had last week, um, orange is the color of Move Forward Party, and red is the Thai that was that actually Thai expected to win a landslide, but they failed. So with the victory of uh, Move Forward Party, and they actually, we have two systems, first part of the post for 400 seats and 100 seats for um, party list. So this is the, the vote for party list. Move Forward got 14, 14 million votes, which was not quite surprising to me because for the party list that there was across the country. But for the constituencies, uh, MP, then it's quite a shock for many people when they actually want more seats than expected. But overall speaking, when we look at the, the change in the Thai electoral map, we can see the progressive uh, side is actually make uh, making more space in Thai political landscape, and this is, and this is the, the map for move forward, and they won in mostly in Bangkok, and because it's very important to take Bangkok as well, and that was surprised me, surprised me and everyone as well. They took almost entire Bangkok or 30, 32 seats, and across the country, and the south. The South is supposed to, this is the southern part of Thailand, and it's supposed to be a very conservative areas as well. And they were part, the South has been part of the Democrat Party and the North. Okay, and this is just the party of the current government. They didn't win big. So when we look at this, what kind of future, or the future roles of the military? Um, <clears throat> One of the main things that everyone is hoping, because this is also the main policy of Move Forward Party is to remove the military from politics and to end military coup d'etat in Thailand. And one of the main policy is to end the, this is the policy to end the military conscription. That is one of the most attractive policy. And what does it mean? It is just the end of the military power. Because if you look at military conscription in Thailand, to some extent the reason that keep, it is also one of the contributing factors that keep the military as part of society as well. Because once uh, people from low-income families become part of this, then they can also earn money as well. And that is, some fam that is why some family also feel um, not comfortable, but not strongly against the military. So when, if move forward can become a government, that is remain a question. And if they, they do, and if they can actually remove this, that could also change the, the, the position and the role of the military in Thai politics as well. Thank you.
Great. So we all knew that, you know, 2021 February, surprise, be cool, and then military run in again. No one is, you know, expecting this thing. You know, they say, why? I mean, you already got a large political space. You already got a secure position in the, the whole nation, and why you still need to stage a coup? So we search for it, and there are three particular reasons that everyone is talking about. The first one is very agency matter, right? It is like there's a power struggle between May Online and the Aung San Suu Kyi, so they can, they can get along, election kicking in. So, you know, May Online won a presidency, stage a coup. That's the one agency part, the rational that we all talk. The second part is a little bit more stretching out the story. They say it's a breakdown of civil military relations during the NLD administration. So this is the time military is trying to, not very happy with that, so they stage a coup again and resettle it. That's the second part. And the th third part that I'm more focused on is a little bit more stretching than this. And this is say, this is the military try to realign this, you know, their position, their route and the way they approach to the vision of the nation state building. And this is part of their strategic culture. This is the one that I'm focused more on for this particular uh, seminar. Um, you will notice on you that I will use, I, I use the Tamadoy in here. It is not that politically choosing part, but I want to focus more on that particular arm um, institution with that particular ideology and vision in here. So this is while I starting up in here. So you, you know, let's go back a little bit history. I mean, I don't want to take so long. It's quite small, but I, I will keep it on. So how the military start to think that they are part of the the whole nation structure and they have right to do so. So after independence, military was quite small. As soon as we got independence from Britain, we used to have a civil war. And the military start to say, you know, this civil war was the outcome of the civilian politician and we are fighting for it. And they cannot, you know, figure it out politically on this matter. So they are start to saying, okay, and then what about the military leaders at that time? And they are also more, le more or less politicized. And there are a lot of political fictions within the military. So they say, you know what? We cannot live under the civilian administration all the time, but we still have to figure it out our own space. That is out of the political structure, out of the political domain, and let's see how we can work for the nation and the defense. That's so 48 to 58, they start looking for their own space in the society and nation. So the first part, they are searching for own space. And then 58, caretaking government kicking in. And this is the first time the military start to realize that, oh, we can also run the country like a civilian administrator. You know, efficient, effective military forces, we can run it on. So we know how to do so. So during the two years, they start to realize that, okay, we have now our own space and we can run the country. So let the civilian run it on and let's see how they can manage in the another term. Unfortunately, at the time, you know, a lot of political struggle coming in between the ruling party, a lot of political crisis kicking in, and s discussion on the federalisms and the secessions and, you know, federation kicking in all the time. So the military say, you know what? You cannot rule the country anymore. We have our own space. We have our own administration and we can run it on and we will try to restart the system as Aung San, the founding father or the founding military, legacy of one nation union. This is how they kicking in to the nation politics in 1962. But the problem is coming up there, right? I mean, staging a coup is easy and ruling the country is another story. You stage a coup, next day you don't know how to run the state. So for the first two to three years, military, military don't know how 
to run it on, how the political idea and vision is there. So what they are trying to figure it out in the first two years is you know, whether they're going to go on the Indonesian way or more, we will go on the more like in the other, you know, Yugoslavia way, the left and right thing coming up. And then finally choose uh, you know, left-wing nationalism and they say, we can use this socialist program as an onsen legacy, so we will start to going on and putting onsen as a head, as a kind of socialist way. So then they start looking from space capability and now they are looking on, we are the guy who can put on the ideology of the state and we can let the administration to going on. And then that is pretty well. So you will see it, you know, the role of the military in Myanmar, I mean, even the socialist regime is quite different from other socialist countries, right? I mean, the military is not under the party itself, but they are above both party and the state. And they say, we are the guys, the guiding guys on there. And 1988 coming in, the socialist regime is gone. So they are start thinking on, how are we going to put the idea again? And what are the political ideas to rule the state? And what about, are we going to moving on the Aung San issue? Because the opposition leader is Aung San daughter. And they say, we cannot use Aung San anymore, but we have to figure it out, that another ideology to run the state. And this is where all these ideas of nation, religion, race, protector of the nation, and nationalism kicking in for about 10 years. And after that, they are trying to figure it out the legal legitimacy to supporting on. This is where we talk about 2008 constitution based on this ideology. So I'm talking about more 1988 to 2021. That is where the military try to justify why and how we are there. But if you're looking historically, it's a, a little bit different from Thai part. I mean, Thai in the beginning, they say the nation, king, and, and the monarchy, right? But in Burma, this is starting from a little bit more trying to figure it out. The military is how are we going to live in here, independent from the political entity, independent from the other ideology, and how are we going to readjust to maintain our own survival through the civil-military relation. So it's a very different route that we are going on, even uh, both of them are military dominance in there. So, Okay, this is a map that I, what I said so, as I just, I will skip it on. Uh, so one might talk about the realignment. So the thing is, you know, when the NLD administration kicking in, they start to confront this idea of the military vision and nation state of, you know, based on the own ideology. So they recently, there was a one uh, research on the, you know, how the, uh, or the how the state ideology was, you know, created through the civil military relation in Myanmar. There's a really nice book uh, coming out in from J in Japan, and so NLD administration always trying to, you know, challenge on this thing because, of course, they have a democratically political uh, legitimacy that have they have, and the military, from the other hand, they are thinking that, you know, we are all above the party politics, you can, you know, contest your own ideas in party, but we are the guy on all above, setting up the state idea, setting the state vision, and setting how the nation should be in the future. So you cannot contest to us, but you can contest yourself in wherever you are. But this created tension in there. So military started to think, okay, whether we need to realign it. And there are a lot of new ideas coming in, and the new landscape is changing. Right after 2010, you know, a uh, lot after the lot of ceasefire with the ethnic armed groups, the idea of the federalism coming in again. So military start to realize that. I mean, 
okay, we need to figure it out how are we going to realign in the new political landscape that we have experienced. The people talk about, you know, 2010, 2010T, but we have to look a little bit more stretching up because, you know, the idea of 2008 constitution go back to early 2000. So if you're looking and if you are sitting in the, you know, Tamador office or the Tamador research office, you are thinking for the 20 years period. So they thought this is some time we need to realign ourselves how to maintain the new ideology for the upcoming 20 years or 30 years. This is how they realign it. So how do they get the legitimacy from there to keep maintain their own position? They are two different ways. I mean, for legal legitimacy, we always say it's a 2008 constitution, the way are so just putting on. But there are other traditional legitimacies that they construct through, you know, different proxy, right? As they are always trying to maintain the uh, protector and patron of religion, uh, you know, they say we are, they are constituents are more like monastic order monks and that are nationalists because of these constituency, they have to support the different monks and the restoration of the different building, religious building. This is where we will see how the military and monks are engaging together. That is because of the, the source of legitimacy is coming from the religious uh, uh, identity and uh, religious institution. And but what here we have a very different way with Thai too, right? In Thai, the military is trying to say. The religion is here, so we're supporting the military, military, uh, religion as a military, right? In Burma, if you see it, right, military is just seeing the monastic institutions and religious institutions as a kind of instrument, as a source of legitimacy, and these activities are just to, you know, support their vision of the state. So it's a very different way that Thai military is seeing the religion and the Burmese military is seeing the religion. It's a very two different way. It's the same thing for the ultra-nationalist movement that is trying to, you know, creating the core supporting group and the national ideology. So this is where the trying to promote military Tamador is always here, regardless of the ages. So they are saying that the idea of modern military in 1948 is true, but it's a modern military. But the Tamador itself was exists since before 13th century. We were there since 11th century. That's the one reason if you go to Nepidor or the Defense Service Academy, you will see the three big warrior kings statue on there. They were saying that we are here since the beginning of the state of Burma, and this is how we are here. And this is where you've got a legitimacy to be here all the time, no matter the different version of the history or different version of the ideology. We are here. And you will see, you know, you will, there are different constituencies, but what about convincing to the general public in here? You need to convince you are the guy, right? So this is where the idea of small traditions are here. So you have to perform different spiritual and the ritual acts to show you are the person who is ruling the state. For example, you are putting the umbrella on the uh, uh, pagoda, you perform certain spiritual rituals that is to show as a king to, you know, construct that you are the guardian of the state to convince the general population. That's the one reason the previous military regime, uh, SPDC or in 1990s, they renovated all the grand palaces around Myanmar just to show that we do all the rituals as a king, we are the lineage of the kings and we are restoration of the nation and the republic. So this is where they try to convince and create the legitimacy out there. So the so you can ask, you know, why are we studying, studying this? You know, this is just a part of military propaganda, you're studying it. I mean, what I want to study and what we are trying to study is the strategic culture of the Myanmar military and also the 
authoritarian regime in Southeast Asia, right? How they shape the strategic culture, how they think, how they make the decision making and what they are going to make in the future with this kind of thing, what are the priorities they are going on, and how they're gonna, you know, adapt the situation and creating a new landscape, how they create an influence internally and externally, and how they do in the future. So this is something, you know, when we talk about the strategic culture, we all see looking like the 1970 Kissinger, you know, all this net assessment thing. But this is something that's uh, quite distant from this, you know, strategic culture net assessment and this kind of more social, sociological, anthropological study. But in reality, you can put it together and we can see how they develop, how they're going to interact, and we can try to predict or we will try to project how they're going to maneuver in the different political landscape. So this is what we are trying to do so in strategic culture of Myanmar military and also probably try to compare with Thailand. So you can say, um, what about now? We've got an armed conflict. Can we uh, change this status quo? Uh, of course, this depends on how much extent you can consolidate, consolidate the power. Uh, if you're looking on the armed conflict. And what about the non-safe armed actor that we have seen today? Are willing to limit their own power? Because you know, if you have an arm, usually you don't want to limit. And how they gonna, whether you've got a limitation, what you want to go on? And what the culture of fear and security in the power vacuum? We've seen a lot of power vacuum in the pocket. And what, what about the people in there? How, who can provide there? And is there any resistance to change in political armed forces? Like, uh, we usually say, you know, for the armed resistance, that we need the political armed forces because we need a new political landscape. At the same time, the military is too much politicized. That's why we, they are in there all the time. So what's the degree, the right amount to put the military in the right amount of politicized armed forces? That's the one thing. And then finally, it's a leadership. What kind of leadership we are looking on? Is it a collective one, or is it just a more like a legal way of leadership, or whether it's a you know, top-down, try to command and control, or the bottom-up to find the new uh, military leaders? These are all you know, values and contexts that we need to looking on and address. And then the problem is you know, the military cultures are always evolving, especially in the armed conflict. And the new military culture can replace the old, or with the democratic values, or the problem is, what about the old military culture that we've seen, the, you know, Tamador or the Sitta, whatever, have a, they can adopt the new landscape for the political vision? This is something that we don't know. The only thing we have to looking on is, what is the circuit breaking part? How to depoliticize the, you know, the role of military in the whole political landscape and whole vision out there in the future. So this is something that we need to looking on. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, both of you. I think we can move over to those chairs here and, and continue in the conversation. And I think what you said last there, Amara, is very in interesting. Um, because uh, I remember in like early Thainsane uh, period, um, there was a lot of emphasis about on reform and, and, and uh, foreign countries coming in uh, thinking that you could capacity build uh, the army away from politics and into a professional army like what you would have in, typically in Europe. But, but I think we are talking about very different institutions, right? There's like the political army or the political military is a much broader political institution 
Uh, and, and the question is, can you reform away this, <laughs> can you reform away this kind of political institution to become something else? Or do you need to have a more political structural um, change uh, to, in order to, um, to ma make a difference in, in these countries? And I guess the same question could go to, uh, to Thailand as well. Um, if you want to say something about that, go ahead. And, and meanwhile, the audience can sign up and I'll try to take note of who wants to come um, with a question or a comment. Yes, I, I was, you know, part of these thing <laughs> that the try to you know change the uh, the professional army or the standard army is a two different term that they are, they were using the time so it's a it's a apple and orange when they are coming in they're talking on that right when the western uh, uh, the training coming in this is focus on more how they should behave with the engage with the civil military relation perspective um, but you know no one was talking about the how the vision of the state and how the vision of the military involved in the society they 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 don't. They do not talk much about it. So, and there is not much, you know, research on this part too. So, I think uh, changing the, you know, the whole thing, ideological, you know, military vision, military positioning. I think it's a generational thing. But you know, before we getting to the area that we want to get there, it is sometimes we need to figure it out some form of coordination between the civilian administration and this political army not to get into the chaos like this now. So this we need a, some kind of, you know, uh, what's it called? Yeah, safety net. Uh, this is something that I thought, and we haven't thought about that that time. Yeah, actually, if you look at Thailand, um, you know, when we look at the military in reshuffle, I'm not sure what's happened here, but in Thailand, whenever the prime minister uh, says something about that, then you will see the front page of Thai's newspaper said, oh, the government is actually intervening in the business of the military. But to me, it's not. The government is the head of, uh, the prime minister is the head of the government. So the prime minister have all kind of legal rights to say whatever he or she want in the army. But this is not the case in Thailand. Whenever the, uh, we have civilian prime minister and s saying that perhaps we have this person or that person, then the, it's very typical to read on Thai newspapers that or the prime minister is actually intervening. And I think that is a very wrong word to use. It's not intervening. The prime minister is doing their job. And this is what happened in Thailand. And also the military don't actually see themselves as an organization under the government. That is also another problem. But actually, when we look at the, the real people who are working in the Thai army, we do have quite a number of progressive and good military, to be fair on them. But the problem with Thailand is because these people don't actually have opportunity to be at the top. So that is the problem. So those who are at the top are the very conservative one who uh, want to be there forever. So then that is one of the problem. And if you look at actually in the previous election, in, in this election last Sunday, one of the most interesting thing is in Bangkok, that is one of the very, the area that is the military base area and move forward one significantly. 
So the voters in that constituency area, they 90% are military. And then that move, move forward one. So that also says something about what the military want as well, not just people at the top. So when we look at the chain, whether they can be more professional and they can be the military that we have seen, that, that I think that is possible, but it would take quite a long time in Thailand because currently the conservative military is still in power and they never want to change. And the other thing is also about the um, business interest and financial benefit that they get. Because when you are at the top, and this is also another problem in Thailand. A few years ago, we, the country enacted the law called um, conflict of interest. So if you are holding public offices, then you are not supposed to be part of any businesses. But even since then, and we still have uh, supreme commanders, high-ranking military staff, general sitting on advisory boards of big businesses. And even General Prayut, the current prime minister, when he was the supreme uh, commander, he was on this advisory board of the petrol company in Thailand. So this is a problem when they, they don't see being a military just as a cop serving the country, but also to go to the top and take advantage of the situation, of the position as well. Uh, good afternoon, my name is Islin. Um, I have been working on Buddhism and politics for quite some time and I take a lot of interest in the connections between the military and Buddhist institutions. Um, and I'm particularly interested in, in this shift, as you mentioned, Amara, uh, in ideology post-1988, which is a very clear shift, right? And the military with its Sayadayaka program, it's a clear strategy on how to co-opt uh, the Sangha. Uh, and we see that um, still today after the coup. Um, but I, I think what I would like to have a conversation with you about uh, would be how we study this. There is a tendency of us to stand on the outside and have a very instrumentalist approach. Uh, it's only about uh, legitimations of power. Um, but these are large institutions with connected families, and I think that many of them would actually believe that what they are doing is right. So it's a deep, both ideological as well as religious, commitment in this. And I think, I mean, some sections of Tainz and government was very strategic about the use of religion during the 2015 campaign, but others, like Tainz was deeply you know, <laughs> convicted about um, him being a protector of Buddhism. So just what kind of ethical and methodological challenges do you see when you do this kind of research and not just standing on the side? You have to engage with them and take their agency seriously as a researcher. And that raises so many ethical and methodological challenges. Thank you. Yeah, yeah true, true. I mean, I mean, um, the, the first part is, you know, everyone is deeply in the, <coughs> the Buddhism. And it's interesting part is, you know, the military, the, if you are the military personnel or if you are the soldiers, you are even more deeply more than everyone else because you are in the battlefield and you're always afraid to get killed. 
right? So you always need someone to support spiritually. And you always, you know, this is how the relationship is starting on. And the, the we also have to have a, the, the, the now for me, what I'm looking right now is a from the basic of the idea of the concept called Sayadaka. This means, you know, the, the, the monks and the patrons and the supporter relationship, right? So it's a kind of complex system between the monks and the military and as a kind of patron and the supporter, how they interact for the different part of their life. So this is one way that you can see you know, how a military person and a monk established. And it's also from the how as an institution and the monastic order interact from this kind of landscape uh, framework. That is a one way to looking it on. Another way we are looking is more on the you know instrumental as I you say the how the military use it. The same time we don't usually see is how the Buddhists monastic orders use the military to influence and keeping the identity and you know on the attendant collective. That is another way we also need to uh, looking quite seriously. And then I that in, in in my research I focus more on the interesting part is how the conservative women play a critical role in this. Relation. I mean, we people talk about you know military, you know bar generals and the monks, but in reality, the whole everyday, day to day, you know, all these relationship is driven by the wives of these soldiers and the ordinary women in the you know uh, wards and society. They engage with the monks and monastic order every day, but we just simply forget about that. So this is an area that you know we also need to looking on, and there's a really interesting aspect of how ordinary or we usually say conservative women play a critical role in nation-state building part. Uh, that is an interesting part, yeah. And maybe we can move that question over to Thailand as well, because you talked about this, Amara, that uh, the military is taking on the role of the ancient kings. Yeah. In Thailand, you have a king, mm -hmm. and, and protecting monarchy and, is, and religion and, and nation is, is, is really, really key to the military. So, so why is that so existential for the military, you think? And, and maybe even um, to put it a little further, ki the king's role in Thailand is very much to perform rituals uh, throughout the year. What would happen if there was no king, like very hypothetically, if there was no king to perform those rituals? What, what do you think people in Thailand believe could happen to the country? Would that have an existential uh, effect on the country and the nation? Mm. Yeah, but actually when we look at this, um, perhaps I will have to talk about the political reform in 1932 when Thailand changed the political system from absolute monarchy to be what we call democratic country and with the king head as um, head of state. So theoretically speaking, from 1932, the role of the king and the position of the king as head of state should have changed. But the problem in Thailand is because the perception of people towards the institution of the monarchy remained largely the same among conservative groups. Like the king is and the institution of the monarchy is still untouchable and still have a kind of magical power perhaps. Like if you look at the study of British politics, they talk about magical power and practical power. When they talk about magical power, they talk about the roles of the monarchy back in uh, before industrial revolutions when people believe in um, things that we cannot prove. And this is, I think this is what happened in Thailand because people still 
to be specific conservative people, they still attach to the notion that the king is actually representing God and the so it's we are not supposed or we cannot criticize the institution of the monarchy. And that, that is a thing that we have seen. And so the other thing when we talk about in inference of Buddhism, and I think the other, perhaps I see it as a kind of um, problem and obstacle for democracy in Thailand is the belief in karma. And that because when we talk about democracy, then we talk about enforcement of the law. Then if you do something wrong, then you have to be prosecuted. But many cases in Thailand, people can go away with this because people say, oh, because in the next life, then these people will suffer. So when it comes to the, the situation, if we look at the, the way the institution is perceived today, and people still have the same perception before we change the political system in 1932, that's why um, the institution remain revere and worship by most conservative people. And we have to be careful. In the situation, with the system change, um, I don't think we can see that situation very soon, but if things change, it would take some time for for Thai to adapt to the new environment or new political setting. But um, actually, when we look at a large numbers of liberal people was, who voted for move forward party, and they have been stereotyped as a kind of anti-monarchy group. But to some extent, I would argue that not not all of them are anti-monarchy. The reason that they want to support reform of 112, they just want the system, as we have seen in most other countries, not because they want to, to destroy the monarchy as they have been portrayed. And this is one of the problems in the country when, when the, there is a challenge for the power structure between the conservative and the liberal group. And the conservative have no uh, other way to win other than playing this card. I, I, before I, I, I uh, go on, I, I just w would like to know more about the, the uh, Tatna Dao. What is the? Uh, Tamadol. Tamadol. What, what is it? Is this a constitution, laws? Or? It's, a, it's a military, a uh, Burmese military. It's a Myanmar Armed Force, but uh, Tamador, when they say Tamador, mean it's a not only the Myanmar Armed Force, but it also includes the different militia and also the reserve. And sometimes they even include the uh, what's called the firefighting brigade and everything. But the what's the what's different from the armed forces alone and Tamador is the is when, when we say Tamador, it means it's a politicized political army. The Myanmar Armed Force itself is more like a operational part of the defense only. So if you're looking on the you know Burmese text when the Myanmar military say Tamador is mean all like political notations, political visions are included. But they say Myanmar armed forces in the white paper or something this means just more like a, a operational. Oh, okay. 
I will ask now uh, Myanmar and Thailand. I think in some way Myanmar is going to, I don't know, have election. I, I don't know, like Thailand or not. Uh, but if, if, if it is going to be election, general election like Thailand, you know, just uh, that, do you think uh, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi or, or the opposition's uh, party will be able to, you know, come back like, you know, the Thai, Thailand side where now, you know, things, things start to, to change, yeah. Right now, right, uh, Thailand is, is it came to this, and the Orange uh, Party and the Red Party yes, uh, uh, won the e election. Uh, do you think um, they will win? They manage to, you know, to govern Thailand because right now it, it looks like the right wings or military or the royal, you know, royals are trying hard to block this. Yeah, maybe we can have a very brief kind of yeah. what the situation looks like in both countries now. I guess in Thailand, everything depends on negotiations <laughs> at the moment. But uh, how, what about Myanmar? The earliest, if we are lucky, uh, the earliest date will be the uh, 2025, late 2025, October, November, December. Uh, for for three reasons, the first part, the first reason is uh, there is no budget. Uh, we have we seen the budget, and then there is no preparation for election this year. That means no preparation this year mean no election in next year. Uh, the second part is there is no successor for the uh, army chief, so they need a successor before having an election. The third reason is uh, they are the military is waiting the the expiration date of the previous election. To avoid the contestation of legitimacy, there's a three reason. There's three reason make the election to be earliest will be 2025, October, November. Uh, uh, the role of Aung San Suu Kyi. I mean, the the next election will be fraudful, and there will be a lot of fraud. Uh, there will be not free and fair. Everyone knew it, and then no one's expect there will be free and fair. But those who are inside Myanmar and those who are talking about the elections are not looking for the election, but they are looking for the political landscape after the election. So if they're after the election, there will be certain form of civil administration kicking in, and there may be some form of political space orbit again, and there, this may somehow have a, some room for the reform. So everyone, when people are talking about election, they are not talking about the expecting for the election. They really don't care. They knew that there's nothing there, but they are only looking for post-election political landscape there. And I think uh, uh, popular opposition will not contest in 2025. Its chances very low. But depending on the political landscape after the 2025, they may come up again in the by-election if happened in 2027. So if we want to look in the whole democratic, you know, you know, how can I say, positive things, the earliest date will be 2027, October, November. Yes. So. When we look at Thailand, despite being hopeful, but we cannot rule down military intervention or other things that could try to stop move forward party to 
to become government today, they signed the MOU between eight coalition parties. And everyone is actually hoping for them to be able to, to get votes from the Senate House as well to when they vote for prime minister. But actually, the other thing I also want to add when we look at Thailand and Myanmar, and if move forward can become a government that could also so be another push for democracy in Asia, Southeast Asia as well, because now everyone is kind of excited with the result in Thailand when the Progressive Party won. And that could also lead to a change in uh, foreign policies of Thailand towards Myanmar and you know the relations, because currently we have the military government, which is have a very good relations with the military in Myanmar. That is what uh, many liberal Thai are not very happy with that as well. And partly because of the problem with ASEAN, you know, non-intervention. But this non-intervention uh, policy of ASEAN, I think that would also be uh, under strong scrutiny by the, the move forward party if they actually can become uh, a new government in Thailand. Uh, thank you very much uh, to uh, Dr. Titipol and Amara uh, for your wonderful presentation. Uh, actually, I would like to revisit the notion of three elements, the nation, the monarchy, and the religion. Uh, although we have the same kind of elements uh, in the time of ancient Burmese kingdoms, uh, but now it is very confusing because Burmese military would claim that uh, they are the nation as well, because they would say that themselves, that they call themselves like Nangando, uh, which is the same as nation. And we don't have monarchy any longer, but there are wannabe monarchies, that is the military. So military has already occupied two elements of this notion. And third part is, of course, religion. I cannot say that the whole Sangha is supporting the Burmese military, uh, but the leaders, current visible leaders of the monks are. So after 2021, um, the progressive forces in Burma are now not only rejecting the military, but also rejecting the influence of those Burmese monk leaders. And that is one of the points that I would like to mention. The other thing is that the fourth element that Dr. Titbull has mentioned, the people. Since 1962 to sometime in 1990, during the successive military rule, they would say that people are the mother and people are the father of the nation. That means piduda ami piduda apa. After 1990, the previous military government has changed that slogan into Tamado is the mother and Tamado is the father of the nation. So if you consider these four elements together, the military has occupied three of those elements. And the only that is left is the religion, which is partially actually occupied or controlled by the military. So what we are seeing now is, you know, if military failed this time to regovern the country, and they are now, the, the religion itself, the Buddhism itself is now risking to lose their influence over 
the Burmese general population. And I would like to hear more about that if you have anything more to discuss about. Thank you very much. That, that's true, and that's that's correct. Uh, the way that you know putting all together, that's correct. Um, military is a state. To be honest, they are the state within the state, and actually they consider themselves as even above the state. They are the state founder. They are considered. And in nineteen before nineteen eighty two, sorry, nineteen eighty, the the Tanga institution, the religious institution, is a kind of quite independent. And so since nineteen sixty four, the the military regime or the state is always trying to control the Sangha institution as a more like an instrument or part of the state instrument or state institution. And then they finally successful in the 1980s. So this is part of the you know, state uh, control after that. So after 2021, I mean, you know, uh, the, you know the, when, when the Spring Revolution, not only against as an institution of the you know, part of the Sangha control thing, the same time, they are also questioning on the different uh, uh, ideological thing. Like, as I mentioned, Titabo mentioned about the karma thing, right? I mean, what's about the karma? What's what's the role of the peoples and the religion? And the, what's the role of Sangha? This kind of thing. The, a lot of uh, ideological backgrounds are up there. So that's the one reason uh, it's become more polarized. Those who are in the rural area, who really believe in the ultra-nationalist thought that Okay, now they are not only against the military and the administration, but they're trying to challenge the existing uh, uh, identity, the identity we believe that is we're proud of, right? So there are a lot of people in Burma still, they only, the only thing that they can proud of is being a devoted Buddhist and really supporting the Buddhist you know, uh, institution. So this is more like an identity you know, uh, challenge for these groups. And these groups are becoming the core supporter of the regime right now and become part of the militia group and become part of the ultra-nationalist uh, group right now. So this also creating a polarization part. So I mean, this is something that, you know, we haven't uh, talked much, but, you know, I think this is a kind of an you know, interesting part to write and elaborate more how uh, 2021 shaped the polarization of the society. That is something we need to look at on. Yes. Like how do they how do they react to this kind of something that is uh, it's, it's also depend on the uh, you know uh, the the what kind of opposition you are right I mean those kind of moderate these try to coordinate and still putting the monastic order and monastic uh, monks as a kind of you know guiding figure you see a lot of you know seminar of the monks in there but they are they are more level le left leans part they are not really say you know that it should be very secular and we don't need to think about that and there are some other just simply reject everything i mean you know so it's depending on de depending on the governance but uh the, the the problem is you know we don't know where to put that's a problem right i mean so one part they are very polar you know very supporting alternation the same time you know others is trying to reject almost everything too. So I think, you know, that will be the pretty big gap in upcoming year. Hi, uh, thank you for this uh, great work that you're doing. My name is Venera and um, I've worked in Myanmar for civil society organization until COVID um, and I follow uh, the, the developments closely. So I, uh, my question is a little bit more uh, related to the geopolitics. And provided that China is a strong is supporting both countries, the military uh, uh, regimes in both countries, and provided that China is um, 
uh, one of the main uh, uh, players in the world and is getting stronger and is becoming a threat to the democratic order. Um, but they're there supporting both uh, uh, Thai, uh, Thai and Myanmar military regimes. And then it seems as if like the struggle now in the countries is um, the pro-democracy movements uh, on the ground fighting in non-violent ways or in Myanmar even in violent, uh, through violent methods, trying to, to bring down the autocratic and, and, and uh, um, uh, dictatorial regimes. But those regimes have the support from China and Russia. How can the uh, uh, underground movements or, or civil society movements uh, gain support from the democratic wor uh, order of the world? In what ways can the, I don't know, is it the uh, democratic governments uh, in uh, democratic countries or organizations? What, in what ways can the world help out Myanmar and maybe even Thailand uh, uh, opposition? Okay. Yeah, actually, when we look at Thailand, I think uh, we have both anti-American and anti-Chinese sentiment in the country. So that is also quite a thing that we also have to look at. And so it's not just a kind of pro-Chinese. Of course, since the coup in 2014, the government appeared to be leaning towards China. And we have Chinese engagement through the Belt and Road Inici Initiative uh, programs that actually most countries in Southeast Asia want to engage with because it can help to uh, improve infrastructure that to provide more connectivities. So when we look at this, um, and the civil societies in Thailand also have quite a range of supports from um, both foreign donors and and domestic supporters as well. And this is another thing that when we look at the democratization process in Thailand. But the problem with democracy in Thailand um, is that once, whenever civil society work with financial supports from the West, especially from, from the US, they are also demonized by the state, partly because the current, the government that we have had in the past nine years uh, is actually led by the military. So there is the only thing that, they don't actually anti-American themselves, the military, because in Thailand, the military also benefit a lot from from America as well. Since uh, the war, the Vietnam War, we still have what we call the uh, Cobra Code uh, military training. That is another thing. So when we look at the program, it's just, it has more to do with the military in Thailand rather than external factor. Yeah, I mean, this is a very uh, difficult question. Uh, I mean, the, the, the first part is, you know, when all, all the movement right now, uh, social movements, all the democratic movements around the regions are, you know, we all against the authoritarian regime. And then if we against the authoritarian regime, we cannot avoid China because we are in solidarity with Taiwan, Hong Kong, and this is how all the movements are rolling it up. But when you are in the real politics, I mean, you cannot avoid China because China is a guy, right? So when the opposition in Myanmar, of course, you know, they got a solidarity coordination, Supporting Taiwan as a kind of civil society leaders and you know uh, uh, leaders, but if you if they taking a little bit more role in the national unity government or opposition, 
they are taking as a more like trying to engage with China, right? The thing is, uh, uh, to keep the transition or to you know from this this situation to a little bit better situation in the future, China is a guy because they are more influential and they can they they have an armed group that they are supporting in northern Myanmar and they can easily inject the, a lot of uh, capitals to you know make the survival of the regime uh, but they don't until right now yet but they will do in upcoming months so and if you're looking on that you know as when the United States is saying we are supporting Myanmar with the uh, NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, uh, that is part of the Defense Act uh, that's creating China's overreacting and not engaging with the SAC that they don't engage much before, right? So that the thing is, you know, we have to figure it out how the fine tuning between uh, how to avoid the little go war or another bigger war or the warmer war between the Thai Myanmar border and how are we going to go along between the China US competition? I think that is not only the Myanmar issue, but you know, also the Thai is also worried that you know, how, what if you know, a lot of capital is injecting the, the border and the China is overreacting and then the whole security, you know, stability going to be in the mess up. So this is something that you know, had to go a little bit uh, cautiously and you know, playing along with that. Yeah, uh, thank you. We, well, I think we have to stop now, but uh, as, as you, you were saying, like it or not, China is the guy. <laughs> but I, I'd like to thank everyone uh, for coming, taking the time to come here. Uh, it's been a pleasure. I uh, hope to uh, see you again next uh, meeting. Um, I just want to uh, shamelessly promote, self-promote uh, a policy brief uh, that is coming out on PRIO probably next week. Um, uh, written by Andra Mongmao and myself. Uh, it's called Myanmar's Interrupted Transition, The Democratic Instinct Survives. So hopefully that will be of interest to many of you. Um, thank you so much for coming. Have more snacks on your way out and uh, see you next time. Thank you.